And on the radio came Paul McCartney singing, I think it was Ebony and I, sorry, singing, hang on, sorry, Paul. Shut up. Ebony and Woof. <laughs> Hugh Padgham, and this is my 80sography. Hey! Welcome to the third part of the my 80sography Hugh Padgham interview. Uh, we're getting into the mid 80s now, a really interesting period in his career, where he's the go-to guy and is asked as we will find to take over or salvage albums that have somehow lost their way. Uh, they always say you tend to learn more from your failures, or your perceived failures and successes, and that's the case here with lots of interesting stuff on Bowie, Human League, and especially McCartney. Because uh, within that you have a massive worldwide success with Phil's third solo effort. So enjoy and speak late. Oh, you may, you may hear the odd interjection from uh, one of Hugh's dogs, Billy. Hello, Billy, if you're listening. Uh, enjoy the episode if you're listening, and we'll speak later. Part three of the interview coming up now. 1983. Based on what you said in the last interview about the police and the songs from the singles from Synchronicity, I listened to King of Pain again, and the first verse and chorus, it's the same lyrics as the second. So was that an example of where you... Did the song actually start on the second verse chorus, and you kind of... I don't think it did. I think it it, it was recorded all the way through because I think the second verse is, is different musically, isn't it, I think? Yeah, because when you said you kind of created that in a way from scratch with Sting, I wonder yeah. if that's an example of where you, you patched a different version instead of having it with the band all the way through. Is that an example of where you kind of paired back the first verse and chorus to give it a bit of light and shade? Yeah, I think King of Pain, everything was sort of playing all the way through it. I mean, so sonically, it sounded like it starts sounds at the start of the second verse with the whole band playing. So did it sound like that from the beginning, originally? As far as I remember, everybody was playing everything through it, so to speak. And we yeah. just blocked stuff out using the mute channels on, on the console. It's just that when it starts on the second verse, it's the same lyrics. So I wondered whether that was... That wasn't doubled up then. It wasn't like you, you create a new verse chorus. No. 
Okay, so that's the first verse. Yeah. I'm just going back to the first verse. Yeah. No, I, you see, I think the drums would originally have been playing here. And then and then we bring the bass in in here and then you see in in, in that um first towards the end there we would have taken out it sounds like we took out the bass drum no the bass drums there the bass you take but we've done we've done some editing and so then it comes yeah we would have taken everything out there in that break so i think we we formulated the song with the um computer on the console making those gaps and so originally it would have just been the band playing all the way through and you thought like yeah, just pretty, take out here and create yeah, i'm pretty sure it was yeah and we did a similar thing with wrapped around your finger as well right I'm trying to trying to listen to a song in my head now i love right it's it uh, yeah it's my favorite track on the album actually that one yeah okay so let's go on to the genesis album genesis Ooh. genesis 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 it's the first it's two things one you are now the co-producer as opposed to engineer and it, I think I believe it was the first time the album was fully written in the studio. So how different was your role as a producer? How noticeable was it that you were now? I mean, or was it not set up that way? It just became that through the process. I think it was really just, I think we discussed it last time a bit that, you know, I'd become sort of part, not part of the band, but, you know, used to being with them and stuff. And I don't think my role changed at all. It was just, I think they thought that that I was part of the record enough to be called a producer but I don't I don't remember ever my roles changing much at all <laughs> if you see what I mean yeah it was the same with Phil Collins albums on the on the on the first one I'm co-producer or whatever it is and then it ends up being you know produced by Phil and Hugh or Hugh and Phil or whatever but I didn't do anything different and in terms of some of the tracks, and Mama is probably my favourite Genesis song. I think it's a, a, like a really epic, brilliant song. Do you remember anything about the recording of that one? I do, yeah. I was li actually listening to the album a bit earlier. It's good. It's a, it's a really good album. It's really underrated, isn't it? It never gets talked about, really. I think it's a really underrated album. Some cracking songs on it. Yeah. Well, the laughing in Mama. Ha, ha, ha. Those gaps. That comes from i was really into grandmaster flash you remember the um the song the message yeah there are two massive hits there's that white lines wasn't it yeah i was sort of really into that and played it to phil because i'm not sure that he had heard it and he loved the laugh in that and um it is actually one of my i mean it's really old now but it's one of my still one of my favorite sort of early days of hip-hop or whatever you want to call it isn't it i still love that so he loved that laugh so he kind of put that in <laughs> so yeah i mean the, that it was all sort of like all these new drum machines and and things like that so it was it was really good fun 
to, to make that record. And I think it was the first one we made in the new, we, we built a new control room at the Fisher Lane Farm, the Genesis Studio, and it was state of the art, you know, really, we had a huge, great new SSL console and fantastic equipment. I mean, it was really as good, if not better than a lot of city studios. And so I was like the proverbial sort of pig in shit. If you know what <laughs> yeah. And um, sorry, am I allowed to say things? Yeah, like yes. That? So you can say pig, that's fine. <laughs> pig in bleep. So it, 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 it was good fun. And it was also the second record I'd made with them. So I think we knew each other a bit better as well. So were you at the stage where you could say to them, that's not very good, or I'm not keen on that bit, or that guitar part needs to be done again, or that vocal needs to be done again? Did it have that level of comfort with them at this stage? Because I assume you had that with Phil anyway, because you worked with him on a few albums by then, but with the other yeah, guys. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think so. I suppose I probably was a little bit more, well, certainly not over familiar, if that's what you mean. But yeah, I suppose I probably had a, a little bit more input. I think, as I said the other day, when the previous album I did, Abacab, with the band, was really hard work for me because we just built, literally were sort of still building the studio when we started to record. In fact, I think I might have said that I wished that we had waited a few more weeks from the technical point of view. So I was sort of slightly cacking myself during Abacab because, you know, there I am for the first time working with this amazing band that I'd hero worship when when I was young. And I didn't want it to be a technological disaster by sounding crap or... Yeah. I mean, it did sound okay in the end. It sounded fine, but it was, you know, I was quite glad I wasn't sort of co-producing that one in a way. So it was, yeah, it was a bit more relaxed from my point of view doing Genesis, Genesis. So when it comes to like having a level of comfort, an example of that, of like being able to say something, did you have a word with Phil about his uh, Mexican accent for illegal aliens? Did you think about, like, are you sure about this, Phil? Didn't I tell you that was my least favourite channel? <laughs> I didn't really have much comment about the uh, Mexican <laughs> in Illegal Alien, put it like that. Because I think it's got a really good tune. I really like the song. But I'm not sure you get away with that doing the accent now. No, yeah. it's quite sort of frenetic, that song, isn't it? It's not my favourite Genesis song, put it like that. So, I like um, it to get better as well, which is the last track on the album. Yes, that's a good one. Yes, I think so, Tony plays a synth bass part on it, which is one of my favourite synth bass parts ever. He's 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 absolutely brilliant. So in terms of calling it Genesis, what was the thinking behind that? Were there any other alternative titles they could have used rather than just naming it after the band? Well, you're talking to the wrong person about naming albums because normally that never even happens when we're recording it. We're just 
recording the songs and there might be towards the end when I'm mixing someone might start coming in with ideas for the cover and that sort of thing so I I don't remember ever having anything to do with with the name of it and and it was just the way it kind of was in those days you didn't really can you think of an instance where you did make a contribution or suggestion for an album title or album cover said these songs paint this kind of picture you should do this for the cover that was either used or not used or would you think like, that's not your area, so you haven't got to worry about that? No, I think that's definitely not my area. <laughs> got enough to worry about. It's just, yeah, sub the album title. I th- yeah, I mean, I think really you would be told to <laughs> get back in your hutch if you started getting involved in that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, you could make comments. I mean, I used to walk down the corridor at the townhouse when I was in Studio 2 with... Phil Collins and Queen were in Studio One and quite regularly I'd bump into to Freddie Mercury and he'd say, come in and have a listen to our new single or come in and have a, have a look and tell me what you think of our new album cover or something like that. He was really good. In fact, I probably knew more about his stuff than um, <laughs> stuff than I did of anything of, of mine. But <laughs> I mean, the one I really remember, but it's not really... Um, well, I suppose it is the eighties. The one I really remember was it was the um, Peter Gabriel's third album. You know, the Melted yes, Face. Yes, Melted Face. Yeah, because I I don't know that was such an amazing cover, and I remember the photographer guy coming in because you know they actually literally held a Polaroid under a candle and melted the Polaroid. That's oh, really? Was that how they got the effect? That's how that effect happened. Oh, never knew that. So, but I don't, you know, I personally not in love with Genesis Genesis cover. I think there's a lot of Genesis. It's a strange one, isn't it? I think yeah. they very much, you know, relied on on um, well, not relied, but had um, people who they a bit like Pink Floyd using hypnosis or you know whatever. What's the what's the least favorite cover of one of your albums, and your favorite cover of one of your albums? Is there one that springs to mind as I ask the question, oh, yeah, I hated that cover. So I can't believe they used that cover. Yeah, I think, I don't think I was, I don't think I was mad on the Invisible Touch cover, to be honest. Okay. So just Genesis covers in general, really, then? It's just like... Well, I think the best Genesis covers were the early ones. Oh, like Foxtrot and... Foxtrot and Nursery Crime. Even Trespass, which was the first sort of proper Genesis album. I like those sort of covers. And 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 Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. They're all yeah. pretty cool. And I think I like the Abacab cover. Mm, nice colours. So 83, Genesis double platinum in the UK, four times platinum in the US, and Synchronicity platinum in the UK, eight times platinum in the US. And it was the best third best-selling album in 83 in America and the eighth best-selling album in 84, which is kind of mad when you think about it. Yeah. So... When you're in the middle of that level of success and kind of creativity, are you aware of it at the time? Or was only looking back and think, my God, that was a mad period, that 81 to 83 period? No, I wasn't aware at all because I was just, I mean, I was aware that the albums had, had, had done well, but I didn't really have time to think of it because almost as soon as I put my mixes away on one album, I'd be straight off to do another one. And also in those days, without having any internet and stuff, the only way I really saw the charts was by looking in either Music Week magazine for the for the UK charts, 
and um, Billboard, which was the American magazine that had the American charts and they used to have like world charts as well. And so I would see that in, in the papers, in, in the reception area of the studios or, or whatever, but it wasn't anything like today. And, and like I said, I was just sort of zooming on to the next, the next record and working in the studio, usually a 12-hour day is a sort of short day. You don't have much time to sort of gloat about your <laughs> success, and I was much too modest to do that anyway. But I think, if anything... I might have said before, I, I was aware that these records were either getting to number one or, or selling a lot because one, if you bumped into other people like my old nemesis, Steve Lillywhite, it would be quite nice to boast to him. <laughs> you had more, in a humorous way, that you'd had more number ones than he had or vice versa or yeah. something. And so I think in a way, well, I wouldn't say blasé was the word, but a kind of one sort of got used to thinking it wasn't being boastful, but just expecting the records you made mostly because of the, the hugeness of the artist, if that's the right word, that you felt a responsibility for making a hit record. Yeah, Do you understand yeah. what I yeah, mean? Because, because yeah, there's an expectation if they're a big artist to produce hit records. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I do remember after after the critical success of Face Value with Phil Collins and then the relatively not so great critical success from the second record, Hello, I Must Be Going. I remember when we started the third Phil Collins solo record that the manager was saying, well, I think you better make a bit more of an effort, guys, on this one. Because <laughs> that know? double platinum wasn't enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> High expectations. Very, very greedy souls. So I assume you'd get gold and platinum discs constantly. You get sent them every time the record went gold or platinum or double platinum, you get a new one or something. Well, funny enough, you, well, yeah, you, you did, but I think uh, I, I probably should have a load more than I've got because I think some territories used to forget about you. But most of the important ones from, uh, from the UK or the US, I've, got although some of them I think I've lost over the years I hate to say in house moves and things but yes it was always a really nice thing to get the gold or silver albums especially the first one so is that face value as a producer yeah I think so yeah. but I, I did get given one for the engineering work I did on Peter Gabriel's third one that was one of my probably earliest ones to be honest Nineteen eighty-four. Uh, we come to two projects which you didn't fully produce, and they're both follow-ups to era-defining massive hit records, and that's the Human League and the David Bowie ones. Yes. Quickly um, cover Hysteria by the Human League. Yes. Um, so it's Martin Russian and Chris Thomas both been involved, and I think you took over at the end. Is that correct? I did. Yes, I took I took over near the end. Well, I don't really know what exactly happened to to Martin and Chris I think Chris might have had some personal problems that he was sort of having to sort out and I got rung up by Simon Draper from who used to run the the Virgin label and 
he said, because he get, he was really good and had given me a break early on when I first started wanting to produce and he'd given me some little like what I call junior bands or acts and doing some EPs and things like that. So we've become very friendly. And obviously I had, you know, I was in his good books with XTC and Phil Collins and that sort of thing. So he he rang me up and said, would I be interested in finishing the Human League? And I said, well, not really, because at the time I, I knew Phil because I had worked with him a few years before just a little bit on maybe even their first album but just like a session or two as an engineer and to be honest I wasn't so into the human league electronic kind of sound at the time so you weren't a neuromantic then no I wasn't at all no not really but I mean I did because you were engineer at the studio you did get to work on some of that stuff. I mean, I've got an engineering credit on um, Journeys to Glory, which was Spandau Ballet's first Mm -hmm. album. And um, so I did, you know, know quite a lot of these people. Anyway, there's an awful sort of story to this. So I said I wasn't really interested and he tried to persuade me. And I said to my manager, oh, look, I'm not really, I don't really think I want to do this. Plus, finishing off somebody else's record and my manager said well look I'll ask for twice as much money (laughs) (laughs) always a good ploy yeah (laughs) and and um Simon's said yes so I couldn't really have no choice then had no choice but do you know what the ironical thing is and I was sort of getting married the next year so I was quite keen to sort of get some cash in the in the bank, so to speak. But do you know what? I ended up really, really loving working on that album and and as uh, loving them as much as the album, which I think is better than it got credit for. It's just one of those things of unrealistic expectations because I'm only following a big hit album in Dare. You're following a, a much-loved album. You know, people love that album. So how can you possibly, as a band... Uh, follow that I know I mean it's the same thing that we'll come to with Bowie yeah is that when when you do get involved in that sort of situation you're slightly lumbered because it's too late to really say oh go away and write a load more songs if you don't think the songs are any good if you see what I mean you've got to sort of make the best of well I don't think it is the best of a bad bunch but I guess the hits weren't quite as hitty as they were on um you know on their previous album or albums if we're talking about Bowie as well but perhaps yeah. we'll come to that in a minute yeah so so did you work on the whole of Hysteria or the tracks that were yeah, completed I did I did a lot of the vocals on it and mixed it and there were quite a few overdubs and things as well. And I, funny enough, I was listening to the Lebanon, which I think was probably the most successful single from it, which slightly surprised me actually but I was thinking oh my god if I was producing that now or mixing it now I would get so much more I love the guitar on it and it's not loud enough and big enough and and so (laughs) um it's one of those records when you listen back because I don't really spend much of my life listening to my own records to be honest but when I do listen back to them sometimes I'm so critical a lot of people go, well, no, it's great and it was, you can't change history and all that, but the Lebanon, I definitely would. She dreams of 1969. 
Honestly, Phil was the funniest guy in the world and Joanne and Suzanne were absolutely so, so lovely. They were just so salt of the earth. Just mm. But Phil was, he was absolutely hilarious. I mean, things would happen. Phil had a very early sample-based synthesizer and they were very expensive and quite big and very prone to breaking down as well. And I remember one Friday, I think it was, no, it was a Thursday night, that was right. He came in, we were working rather, and this synthesizer thing just seized up. And so he said, okay, well, look, I'll reset it, but I don't think I'll be able to do anything till tomorrow morning when hopefully it's it will have sort of, started itself up again anyway so we came in the next morning and it still wasn't working <laughs> and so he said well I, you know we're just gonna have to um I'm just gonna have to sort of get somebody in a technician or something to to make it go and I remember so we just said okay well that's it and I think we didn't work the weekends and I rang up my girlfriend my soon-to-be wife and I said come on let's go to Paris for the weekend and we literally <laughs> <laughs> went to the airport bought a ticket and went to Paris for the weekend it was I always remember that just because this synthesizer broke down but it didn't matter to him at all I mean the awful thing is looking back on it it was one of those times of, in the 80s when we made records there wasn't such a thing mentioned ever as a budget I mean we're talking as studio probably cost 1500 to 2000 quid a day even in those days yeah for, for 84 that's a lot of money isn't it yeah and for today that's a lot of money just sort of like well come on boys let's just go home you know it's like woof there's kiss goodbye to another two grand you know well the same with working with the police and phil there just wasn't a budget i guess if you're selling that many records and there's the assumption you'll sell that many records again so it'll all get absorbed quite easily yeah yeah. I did a Sting album where the hotel bill was more than the studio bill. <laughs> nice hotel, was it? Yeah, we were staying in a very fancy hotel, funny enough, in Paris again. Oh, there you go. <laughs> My assistant had to leave the hotel because he couldn't afford to even do his laundry in the hotel. <laughs> he, he went to a bed and breakfast. Wow. Okay, so let's go on to David Bowie tonight. Another, another big follow-up. You, you touched on it briefly in, in the previous chat. It says in Wikipedia, a quote from you, who am I to say to Mr. David Bowie that his songs suck? And that comes to the heart of, of this project. Is it true you started as an engineer? Because he was yeah. being produced by Derek Bramble, who'd worked with Jackie Graham and Lynx. Or Link. Was it Link or Lynx? It was Lynx, wasn't it? Lynx, I think. Yeah. He, it I think seemed like a weird fit. He was like, in Heatwave. Yes, yes. It seems a weird Thanks. fit with, with Bowie. And he'd become sort of the new young kid on the block I think and I think yeah. David wanted to be more sort of funk based and I think he 
did he thought that I think he thought that perhaps he didn't want Niall to do it because Niall was very much in that sort of chic thing and he wanted to be a bit more kind of reggae and this that and the other but I think another thing and don't sort of get me wrong here because David was one of the favorite people I ever worked with I got on so well with him that you know we remained friends afterwards even though he slagged off the Tonight album afterwards quite heavily Mm -hmm. I think and so I sort of didn't feel so bad saying what I said as well I mean the reason I got involved in it was because David asked Bob Clearmountain who engineered Let's Dance album uh, to do this record and Bob couldn't do it because he used to do all Bruce Springsteen stuff and I think he'd been sort of booked to do Springsteen's record. And this Bowie album came really quickly out of nowhere, just a few months after he finished touring Let's Dance, I think. And this is the crux of the problem because he was persuaded to go into the... Oh, no, hang on, I've got to finish. So Dave, uh, Bob Clearmountain couldn't do it because David rang him up and said, can you do it? And he said, no, I can't. But my mate, why don't you ask my mate Hugh? Because Bob and I were quite good friends. And so that was why I ended up working with David. And even though it was only as an engineering gig, you are not going to turn down working with David Bowie, are you? No, you're not. But but do you have to like, when you find out the producer is, is there a preliminary conversation you need to have with the producer to know that you're on the same page and you can work together? Because that's an important relationship. Well, it is, but it didn't really work like that in those days. He, he you know, I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to engineer the gig. All right, we'll turn up in in the, in the studio. And, you know, so you're just thrown day. in there and you're working straight away. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. meeting Derek before the album at all. So there I was with a great bunch of musicians, Carlos Alomar, Omar Hakim, Carmine Rojas on the bass. And it was like in a great studio called Le Studio, which is in a ski resort about 100 miles north of Montreal. Oh, and, that, and, and being in that studio was also a bit of a problem later on because of the, the hassle of making the record. It took longer than David liked to take. He he liked to work really quickly. And so he got a bit bored of being in this really good studio, but sort of in the middle of nowhere. And that was a problem when we came to finish the record. But I'm sort of going at this slightly backwards because during making of the record, we would sort of be doing vocals and things and David would... What David was, was the most best singer I've ever worked with, I think. I mean, he literally nailed it. If he went out to sing a song, he would nail it in two goes at the most. Blue Jenkins sent me! Oh, somebody sent me! Somebody, somebody. Oh, somebody send me. Somebody send me. Oh, somebody send me. 
Derek started to sort of pick holes in his singing. So I think, I don't know when exactly it was, either Derek wasn't in the control room or at lunch or something. I said to David, look, this is really embarrassing. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm sort of sitting here as the engineer. You've just sung a great vocal and he's getting you to sing it again. And I don't agree. Anyway, after a sort of a week or two of this, I think uh, uh, we had a break in the session and we either went home or whatever we did. And that's when I got the call to say, look, I don't think it's working out with Derek. Can you finish the record? So, of course, I was honoured to be asked and so said yes. That was the good news. The bad news was that I was sort of felt that I was sort of stuck with some songs that I didn't really think, you know, I, I grew up listening to Bowie all his records, I adored them. And so it was sort of slightly disappointing for me to have to sort of work with some songs that I just, you know, I mean, things like doing a cover of God Only Knows is, <laughs> is a pretty dangerous thing to do from one of the best songs ever. If you should ever leave me my life would still go on Believe me The world could show nothing to me So what good would living do me? God only knows What I'd be without you I mean, this is another problem is that David actually only wrote two songs. Well, this is the thing. That's the problem with the album is the material, isn't it? Because Iggy Pop has one less um, writing credit than David Bowie. Is that so? But, yeah, because I think Bowie has six credits and Iggy Pop has five. So there's only two yeah, David but, but Bowie only, songs on the album. Only, only two songs, which yeah. was Loving the Alien and Blue G. Which are both great. I mean, Loving the Alien, I think, is a brilliant song. Yes, but he slagged it off crazily, saying that the, the demo was much, much better. And you Would can, you agree with that? Have you... you can actually hear the demo somewhere. Well, I, I kind of sort of do, in a way, because I think partly down to me and my 80s sort of thing, I find that sort of snare drum a bit bombastic now. No, I, mean, I, mean, I love the album version of it. Um, was it designed as a seven-minute track, or was it like you just created like a 12-inch mix to... Both of the length no, no, of the it album. Was, it, it, was, it was always a seven-minute track. Right. I mean, I I love that song.
was less keen on blue jean, actually. I thought blue jean was a bit sort of poppy. It's a good pop song. It is a good pop song. You just wish he'd like written more songs. Yeah. Than just using on and then, uh, covers and old Iggy pop songs. The awful thing was there were more songs, but they never got sort of developed properly. They were somehow put on the back burner quite, quite soon when, when tracks were being recorded because the band all went home after two or three weeks. And were these songs that ended up being released or they just no, never they finished? I don't think they ever did because they never got finished. And what I remember, and I might be wrong, but Iggy wasn't there for much of the recording at all, even though, um, I'm trying to think here, he, he wrote with David Tonight, which was from Iggy's album called, called Lust, Lust for Life, Life wasn't yeah. it? And I thought our version of it wasn't really very good. And I didn't, and I just, I didn't sort of, as much as I admire Tina Turner, and she was such a lovely person, I just didn't, I personally didn't think it sort of, you know, I just didn't think it, the way we did it was a sort of a good Bowie thing in a way. I mean, this is the going back to him trying to do the reggae thing a bit. He wrote Neighbourhood Threat with Iggy. That's a good song, I think. And it's got a, it's got a vibe. And he wrote Dancing with the Big Boys, which is kind of okay but what I remember was Iggy only came down later on after the band had left and he came for maybe a week five days or or a week and wrote or worked with David on some of the lyrics on maybe dancing with the big boys and I don't know which other ones it was now you Maybe. think anyone's tumble and twirl is the other one that's um, written? Oh for the right, album. yeah, yeah, it would have been that. And then they also worked a little bit on these other songs, but nothing really ever happened with them. And then Iggy had to go, and by that point, David was really—he'd sort of, I think, lost interest in the album, and he just wanted to get it finished. And so these tracks that that got lost were much more in the sort of pop, not pop, rock sort of vibe, like 
neighborhood threat and that. And I just don't think these songs have ever seen the light of day. And I don't know what would have happened to them without actually going to find the tapes now. And maybe someone one day ought to. <laughs> mm, definitely, yes. Yeah, I mean, it would yeah, what state there is. I know I have. I, it, the subject has come up before, and then also then the, and then the last song. There was obviously the Beach Boys song, and then there was a I keep forgetting, which was written by Lieber and Stoller. So you can just see that the whole album was not, it was, I think it was EMI's fault really for forcing him to go in and try and make a Let's Dance Mark II. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I still would not ever have missed the opportunity of, of working with David because he was such a nice guy, such a gentleman and such a brilliant singer. Was any particularly memorable moments with him? Do you remember all conversations or just? Yeah, because um, later on I did some stuff with Tin Machine and we did some sessions in New York and LA. sort of not long before he met Iman, his wife, and I think he was sort of on his own a bit, and he used to take me out to dinner virtually every night when we, you know, maybe we were in the studio for a couple of weeks or something and we'd finish, and he'd say, come on, let's go and grab a bite. And it was when that amazing new restaurant opened up in LA, the famous Japanese, Brazilian chef, what's the restaurant called? No, Nobu, I guess it is. Was it Nobu? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. First Nobu was in LA. So he used to say, come on, let's go and have dinner and go down to Nobu. And we would chat, you know, and it was, it was amazing. It was just great. We'd chat about all sorts of things. And he was, he was literally, you know, my definite top three favorite artists I work with and I just feel lucky and honored and a couple of years ago there's um there was a box set came out of David's stuff in the 80s yes Love and the Alien that was called Love and the Alien wasn't it, it is called Love and the yeah. Alien yeah I luckily was asked to be involved in remastering the Tonight album so I kind of you know learned a bit more about it and interviewed and stuff like that and the the guy Nigel Reeve who was the chap from the record company who's sort of putting it all together who's a lovely guy and he said come on it's it's, it's a good album it really is I, I'm not kidding you I think it's a really good album that stood the test of time and so are you sure are you sure and he says yes yes just listen to what David did at the other end of the 80s, you know, the latter end of the 80s, of which he was quite dismissive about. This is... Tim Machine. No, not Tim Machine, the other... Oh, Never Let Me Down. Up until one century ago, there lived in the Zaiduang province of an eastern country, a glass-like spider. Yeah, and, and and some of the other stuff. And I think, in a way, it isn't such a bad album now, looking back on it. 
and, it, and and without blowing my own trumpet as well. I mean, it sounds really good, punchy. In the remastering process, did you change anything in the mix? Did you change any elements in the songs? Anything we could hear and say, oh, that sounds different because of the remastering no, that you did? What, what you're doing in the mastering is just going, well, maybe the if you're compressing a track a tiny bit, you might be doing it slightly differently. I mean, the original mastering was done by Bob Ludwig, who I used to do all my mastering with um, at a place called Master Disc in, in New York. And he, uh, uh, and still is 40 years later, the, you know, the king of mastering. So it's kind of like a marketing exercise in a way. But yeah. the hardest thing was actually finding the original master tape. Although it was all recorded on analog multi-track tape, it was mixed down to a digital system. And there were two systems around at that time. One was by Sony and the other was by um, JVC, another Japanese company. And we used the Japanese one because we thought it sounded, or I thought it sounded better. And then over the years, these machines just disappeared. And it took us quite a while to find a JVC machine that still worked because they used to, we used to actually record onto, onto videotape. It was like these sort of big cassettes called Umatic cassettes. Anyway, we luckily found the, uh, uh, about probably the only one in the world that still works. And if, if we hadn't found that, the only thing, other thing we had was uh, an analog safety copy because whenever you mix down you always made safety copies in case and sometimes the safety copies were made from the master so you sort of lost a generation so to speak anyway the safety copy that was made sounded really not very good at all especially when we AB'd it to the uh, uh, original one and I don't know whether that was my fault not looking after it properly because you know your job as producer stroke engineer or engineer as well as you know you've got to keep an eye on the quality of of copies and things that are being made anyway i'm sort of digressing a bit but it it, it did end up working out because we found this jvc machine actually in new york okay so hysteria and um uh, tonight were seen as underperformers they both went gold in the uk and tonight went platinum in the us so it's not bad if if your flops go platinum that's that's pretty good, isn't it? As things go, did you get yeah. a sense that the reaction to those? Because you, you you keep saying that you you're always constantly moving on, but you were aware that the reaction to those two albums wasn't as good as the previous albums. Obviously, it couldn't be, but were you aware of this at the time? I think I was aware of the Bowie record not being maybe so well received because I was kind of disappointed in it myself. Yeah, in a way, and then. I would read David's talking about it in quite negative terms at the time. And I felt, I felt that maybe he was pointing his finger at me or being, you know, you take it sort of personally when somebody says, oh, I hate that record. And you think, oh, yeah. God, what did I do wrong? I don't think he meant it like that, to be honest. But it was a sort of a disappointment in a, in a way. But the way I look at it, is being, I had an opportunity to work with David, which not many people did. It might not have been his best album, but I don't think it was his worst. And David was, I wouldn't have missed, I don't, I wouldn't have minded working on his worst album ever because he, he was such a, a great guy, you know? Yeah, and, great experience. And, and also 
his band. I mean, I'm lifelong friends with Carlos Alomar ever since, you know, we still talk a lot. And, and I mean, he lives in New York, but I haven't seen him recently, but we, we talk and, and, and he's played on many sessions for me, as did um, Omar Hakim after that as well. I mean, they're, they're, they're great musicians. I look at it positively like that and I look back at the Human League Hysteria album positively as well because I just had such a great time with the guys in the band. 1985. Okay so moving on to 85 so in 1985 you turned 30 is that correct? Uh, yes I guess yes. That's insane so you had all the success you've only just turned 30. That, that's sickening. No, sorry <laughs> but do you know I, what? I actually feel so useless. When I, when I um, you did all that in your twenties, basically up to this point, I know. I mean, when I look back on it now, it's crazy because when I started working at the townhouse, which was where I got all these lucky breaks, which was basically from the end of seventy eight, so seventy nine, I felt like I was too old. I thought I, I thought <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd blown it honestly because I'd been at this <laughs> lovely studio called Lansdowne, which I was you know, where I learned my chops and that sort of thing a lot. But I felt I'd been wasting my time, you know, recording Roger Whittaker and 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 the Rubettes and things like that, which although I was assistant on the on the Rubettes, but I I really felt that I had sort of more than done my apprenticeship, if you see what I mean. So mm-hmm. it's incredible when you think of it. Because even even then by the time uh, you know, ni- 1980, I was, what, 25, wasn't I? If you've, if you've spent from when you were 19 to 25, which is six years being frustrated, not frustrated, learning, but six years is actually quite a long time when you're young. So I didn't feel like I was young at all. It's just mad when it's you think relative, about it. isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. But it's still, it's still incredible to think about doing all that in your 20s. <laughs> okay, so no jacket required. Even before I knew I was going to talk to you, I've been listening to this album a lot actually um, in recent months. Kind of, kind of fell back in love with it. I always liked it because my brother had it on vinyl, so I listened to it. Basically, your your entire career is probably covered between me and my brother. One of us would have had the album. Do you know what I mean? No one would have borrowed it and listened to it. But yeah, I, I really, I'd say, I think it's his most eighties sounding record, and it's. But I also think it's it's my favorite of his as well. I think the songwriting on it is really strong. Did you feel when you were making it, or when you were first getting the material, I assume you gave you a load of demos to listen to, that you, you did you feel like this is going to be a good album because the material's it's, it's all there? Yeah, I think so. I think so. We had a, a little bit of a sort of theme going on. For instance, the song Latterly in the album, Take Me Home, has got the same sort of vibe as what was it called on, on face value? You know, it's sort of riding off and going off into the sunset with all the, I'm so bad. Hang on. Tomorrow never knows. No. Hand in hand. Oh, the instrumental. You know, that sort of song. Yeah. It starts off with the drum machine and it just gets bigger and bigger and, 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 and that sort of thing.
It's a great yeah. song, isn't it? Do you remember Peter Gabriel coming down to record his backing vocals for that session? Yeah, I do actually. He, I think he played. Uh, he sang rather on "Take Me Home," wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. "Take Me Home." Yeah, and and Sting, and and um, Helen Terry. Terry. Yes. How long did that take? How many takes would you have done? Oh, they would have just come down for the evening. I remember them coming down, and it's just it's pretty easy what they're singing and they're all great singers but sting did um he did backing vocals on long long way to go as well if yeah. i remember right So I think maybe Sting came down earlier in the day and we did that and then Peter and Helen turned up later. But it wouldn't have taken very long, really. I don't think the whole record didn't take, you know, massive amount of time. I mean, we went to L.A. and did horn overdubs there, I think. And we had a few other people on the record. David Frank was this guy who played bass and bass synth. He had worked, he'd worked with Madonna. So we thought that was cool. We were doing lots of sort of drum machine stuff. I think looking back on it now, it is quite, it is in a way, isn't it? That's why I love it. I'm doing an 80s podcast. So I guess that's why I love it. Yeah. <laughs> be really bad. I, didn't, I don't like it because it's too 80s. I'd be like, what am I doing? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think even Phil was a bit, didn't, wasn't he dissing it a bit later on, I think? Um, Possibly because it was so huge. I guess he probably felt he had to. Yeah. But I just think I just think the songs are so good. It just sounds great. It just and even the average tracks, like what were perceived as average tracks to me, like only you know and I know and I don't want to know. I think they sound great now. Is yeah, that... I did. I did listen to it a bit a couple of days ago, knowing that you would be asking me about it. What what jumped out at you listening back to it? Sister Studio, Sister Studio, rather. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a blatant sort of rip-off of Prince, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 1999, yes. So at the time, were you conscious of that? And were you kind of listening to the song to, to see how you could make it mimic it or, or steal what's good from it? Was well, that the approach? Yeah, I was, I, I, I was a bit worried about it, to be honest. But, um, I mean, I think we, we probably discussed it and it was just like, well, okay. <laughs> Funny enough, this record doesn't have a cover on it, does it? I don't believe because the first no, record no, we had yes, a Beatles cover. Yes. No, it's all original. We had a Supremes cover. So maybe you could say that the cover on this one was <laughs> inadvertent cover. It's just not credited, no royalties. That's genius, isn't it? Do a cover, but don't pay any royalties out. That's great. 
Or don't. The best of, bo- best of both you'll, worlds. You'll probably get into trouble now. No, no, that's fine. No, it's it's because I think the tune is different. It's just it's inspired by the, the sound and feel of 1999. Yeah, it? exactly. You can't exactly. say it, it rips off the melody at all. Yeah. So I mean, for me, uh, I re- I remember one more night, which I think ended up being a number one in America, didn't it? Yes. I re- I remember really clearly mixing that song, and it it just wasn't sounding right and they wanted it as a single in America and they had this guy come down the studio, a courier, who, I kid you not, was taking it first thing the next morning on uh, Concord to New York to have it mastered. And I just refused to let him have it. And because it just, it's a very, very simple song and it hasn't got much on it. And simple stuff is sometimes really difficult to to do well. And it just, I just knew it wasn't sort of jumping out of the speakers and everybody loved the song. So anyway, he, he had to go home and Tony Smith, the manager was a bit annoyed, I think. And then I had this brainwave. We had this compressor, special compressor that Sting, Phil rather, always used to, we re- always used to record his vocals through, and it was called an Allen and Heath Mini Limiter, and it was cheap, and he had it with his home set up back from when he had first done his demos for, for face value. And we always used to use this compressor because it, you know, Phil, if you listen to his singing, sometimes he has this very sort of guttural sound and the consonants come spitting out of the speakers at you. And it only worked, doing that on his voice only worked with this compressor. And I suddenly had the idea, because it was a very, or what us in the industry would call a vicious compressor. It had a very sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but it was it was like a dangerous piece of equipment. And I said, well, let's try mixing. We had two of these compressors, let's try putting the mix through this compressor. And suddenly, it really came to life. So I, for, for the first time, I was really happy. But if you listen to the song really, really carefully, you can hear it's a little bit noisy because this compressor was, not only was it cheap, but it was, it was so heavy. When you compress something very heavily, I think we were talking about the drum sounds you know, before the gated drum sound. It brings up the low, quiet stuff as well as the bringing down the loud stuff and it brought up noise and there was just sort of noise, amplifier noise. I mean, kind of like hiss, kind of when you Almost can... like hiss. If you, yeah. if you really listen to it carefully and you can hear in one or two places, this compressor is almost sort of sucking and it was right on the limit, but it just sounded so great. And we just said, look, it's so much better going through this compressor. So the guy came back the next day and took it on Concord the next day. I don't know whether it cost two Concord tickets or not, but thank God, I mean, I <laughs> think- own seat. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was on Concord the same year that Phil Collins was at Live Aid. I wonder if it was the same seat. Might have been. Yeah. I even went on Concord a few times, a couple of I'm times. Assuming, with Bill. Special, yeah. Did you go and to the, Live Aid? 
No, I didn't go to Live Aid. I went to Live Aid in, in, in um, London, but not to the America one. I was in the middle of working with Paul McCartney at the time. Uh, okay. And I don't know if you remember, but his when he was live... Yes, his mic didn't work, did it? His mic went off. And I had nothing to do with the sound of it at all. And when we went back into the studio on Monday morning, he blamed me. <laughs> We'll get to that. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, just finishing off uh, or or whatever with uh, No Jacket Required. The other song I really like is Inside Out. That's kind of one of the hidden gems on the album. It never gets talked about. It's not a single or anything, but I just like it as a song. And I think it really, really is a fantastic version of the townhouse studio to drum sound you know which spawned all this thing so i have a very you know a soft spot for it and if you know what you're listening to like from in the air tonight stuff you can hear it like for me it's sort of very obvious but i i i, I really like that so yes great song. Um, so, No Jacket Required was number one in the US on three separate occasions, was six times platinum in the UK, 12 times platinum in the US. So this is like another level of success. But I, I take it you just didn't even notice that either. So you just moved on to the next thing. Not really. No. <laughs> when I was looking at this the other day, I think it said that it has sold in excess of 25 million yeah, yeah, that's around bad. the world. Yeah. Which is, and, it, and it says it was one of the biggest records ever it is ridiculous. yeah if it's 12 times platinum do you get 12 platinum discs for that album <laughs> theoretically do you get like like one a month or something or every couple of months it's another no, one what, what they do is they give you one record and on, on the plaque beneath it it says five times platinum or, or whatever oh so i'll send you a new plaque each time but you keep the same disc well <laughs> no. you know sometimes record companies are so mean you don't you don't sort of get a a, a look in i mean the good the good labels i think always were you know, because you're talking about some secretary or something who's got to organise these and they and, and should be told by her boss or something, oh, you better give the <laughs> give the artist one, you better give the producer one. And then sometimes you'd get forgotten, I think. But um, I don't know what you get nowadays for, for, for See, if I, if I produce millions 12... of streams. Do you get a certificate Yeah, in a, in a wooden frame or something? I think yeah. if, you've, if you've produced a 12 times platinum album, I would want 12 discs. On the wall, I want each one like on show to show it's tw- it's not just a platinum disc; it's twelve times that. I want the wall to know, right? On the entire wall, yeah. I think you could, you could you could pay for every room in your house with <laughs> platinum discs. You know what I mean? 
going to the kids' bedrooms. There they are. There's, like, there's, there's the Sting ones. There's the police ones. There's the Genesis ones. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's there, a nice... no point being modest about it here. I mean, you've, you've done it. Like, come on, show the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 12 I think I've, got, I, I've got one um, award, as they were called, that I think it's one of Sting's albums or something that has got a platinum disc, a platinum CD, and a platinum cassette. All all in the, in the same frame. <laughs> a platinum cassette. Yeah. Oh, I'd love, have, you, have you still got it? Yeah, somewhere I think. Yeah. Do you uh, have any of your discs back. on the wall in your house? Well, yes. There's this room that, right. called my back cave upstairs, <laughs> um, and she she put them all up there. Can I suggest you call it a plat cave for platinum? <laughs> Plat cave, yeah, that's good. That's good, isn't it? My plat cave, yeah. And you have a sign on your on your door saying "plat cave in platinum," yeah. <laughs> Don't you think that's a good idea? I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah, I think you should. Okay, so um, the first thing with McCartney that came out was a "Spies Like Us" single, which I do really like, and that was produced by Flora Moon. You got a credit on that, so I take it you're involved with that. It was during the press to play sessions, or was that a bit? Yeah, it, yeah, it was. Yeah, so yeah, I I, I would have recorded that most of that stuff i can't I, I got very sort of funny memories of that mccartney record to be honest um we'll move on to that do you have any particular memories okay. of spies like us because pheromone's credited on it as well was it did he finish it off or was there a particular session that he did i mean how, how did that work well i can remember him so well because I think it was the first time I met him. I mean, you know, became quite sort of, um, you know, I used to meet him quite often in, you know, in various recording capacities after that. But I can't, I'm just trying to look here, actually. It wasn't on the album, was it? No, no, it's released in 85. The album was released in 86. It's released um, obviously it, as a time of the movie. It was the movie, wasn't it? Yeah. They're saying it's recorded in September 85 and released in November. Ooh, so when did we do... So I guess Press to Play would have been around that time you just started around that time. Yeah, because I can remember him coming in the studio and I can remember Tony Visconti coming down and doing an orchestral arrangement. Yeah, pass on, on that. When was the last time you heard Spies Like Us, the song? Decades ago, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think decades ago. So I have a kind of soft spot for 80s McCartney because that was my way into the Beatles was through McCartney. So I kind of have a that kind of 82 to 80, 86, 87 period. I kind of a huge amount of fondness for. 1986. So we, we might disagree on, on 1986 when um, we get to the Press to Play album because I know it wasn't a particularly happy experience for you. And I know you said in interviews that when you got the original songs, the demos, you weren't massively impressed with the songs that you'd been sent. No, I, 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 I mean, if, if, if I'm being really, really honest, I got given a cassette of the songs that he had written, mostly with Eric Stewart, I think, and it was just acoustic guitars singing and singing. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's a bit disappointing. I remember being given the cassette Drop, it was dropped round to, to the studio when I, I think I was working with Phil Collins. And I went home that night after we finished clutching this cassette, very excited, because I don't know if, I, if you know the story how I got to work with McCartney. No. Well, 
back in the year before was the first year that emails came out um, that you could send an email. And in those days, it was very, very new technology. And you had to have a small little portable computer because portable computers didn't exist then made by this company called Radio Shack. And you had a modem that fitted into it that looked like a cup because in those days the phones had, um, do you remember the old fashioned phone, you know, with the yep. speaker and the microphone, two two round things connected yep. by the thing. You put them <laughs> yes. in this cup and then you had to dial up a... A, a number especially to get to it and to get onto the network. But everybody in the music business thought this was the best thing since sliced bread because you could send messages to somebody abroad or if they're on tour and you didn't have to know where they were. You could just send them a message and it was amazing and, and, and quite a few of us were into it. Anyway, I was having a lesson on how to uh, work this new setup at this bloke's house on the radio in the background came Ebony and Ivory, which was Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, oh my God, I just cannot stand this shit, basically, that <laughs> sort of poppy rubbish that Paul McCartney's doing now, because I think the previous single was the Frog Song or something. That came afterwards. Don't be. Hey, wait, wait, wait. We're, we're going to re disagree here. Don't be knocking the frog song, okay? Come on. All right, okay. Well, That's the frog beautiful song, song was really great, but he had done some songs <laughs> that, that weren't, you know, my yeah. cup of tea, put it like that. Yeah. Being a fan of the Beatles and especially Paul's early solo albums. I mean, you know, I can't say I was a huge fan of Mull of Kintyre either. But so anyway, what I didn't know was that the chap who was uh, um, teaching me how to use the email, his wife uh, worked as Paul McCartney's manager's secretary. And he told her, she told Paul's manager. And I then a few, a week or so later, get a phone call from Paul's manager saying, oh, well, Paul's sort of heard what you said and he'd really like to meet you so, so what, he heard that you said that ebony and ivory was shit and he wanted to well, meet I you said that uh, it was about time that paul sort of got a bit more sort of i don't know you know serious or rocky and so i i got called in to have a meeting with the manager at his office in which was in manchester square then i think and we had a talk and of course you know age whatever I was 28 29 or something it's pretty uh, big honor to be asked by Paul McCartney you know do you want to do can would you like to do an album with me so I was really really excited and um and then it was like well let's talk about the band and he and the first thing he said well who's going to play the bass and I went sorry what do you mean who's going to play the bass you're going to play the bass surely Oh well, if you want me to have a have a band and stuff, then you know maybe we should get another bass player. But it was all um, going back to the songs when I, you know, so it was exciting. And then when I got the songs, suddenly I wasn't very excited. But I thought that it was completely me because sometimes when you're producing records, you might be given a demo or something that's very basic, 
and you kind of make it into something in the studio. Mm. You work hard with it. You work to, you know, bring out the best of it in a way. And 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 demos can be very basic. And so I just thought it was me. How could I be thinking that Paul McCartney, God, and also <laughs> I was a huge fan of 10cc. Yes, I thought yes. Eric Stewart was amazing because not only did he write some amazing songs in, in 10cc or co-write, but he used to engineer as well yeah. and play guitar and produce. So, I mean, he was like a hero of mine. So I just thought this must be my problem, not, not the fact that the songs aren't any good. I was just doubting myself. So in terms of your relationship with Paul, then, do you think because he already knew the comments you'd made, I mean, it seems like a, a small thing, but he'd heard you say things about Ebony and Ivory. There was, it was almost doomed to fail because he'd always had that kind of, he's not somebody who's used to people saying that shit, that he had that in the back of his mind working with you, that you'd already said something was, the number one single of his was shit. I, I, I somehow doubt that my email tutor's wife used, <laughs> words quite as sort of heavy as that but I mean but it interests Paul enough to ask me to work with him and at that point I had you know pretty good reputation in terms of integrity I used to you know well is I don't know if that's the right word but the police and and XTC and you know whatever else I'd done and I and 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 I was I was hoping that we were going to make a real sort of good muso record and I got some pretty good players together you know including Phil Collins on one track but we had mm -hmm. Jerry Marotta who used to play the drums with Peter Gabriel we had Carlos Alomar um, play guitar we had um, I had Eddie Rayner who played keyboards for split ends who are yeah. you know was a genius as far as I was concerned you, you know we had we had a, a and, and Paul playing bass in the end but it was all just so sort of laboured the whole thing it really was and uh, I, I think I'm perfectly justified to say that I don't think the songs were that were that great you know so was it complicated by the fact that Eric Stewart believed that he was going to, he wrote these songs with Paul, he thought he was going to produce the album with Paul, and then all of a sudden another producer's brought in. So did that lead to some... Well, you see that, I don't really want to talk about it that much, but I've, I've read some unbelievable vitriol that Eric has written or talked about to me. And I was never, ever told that, Eric Stewart was co-producing, especially in the way that I make records, which is very much a sort of, I'm, I'm highly unautocratic. You know, there's, there's producers, I think we might have mentioned before, who's a great friend of mine, Trevor Horn. You know, the way he, he, he produces is, 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 you know, he, he's the boss. I, I produce with the artists or the artists or the writers, but no one ever, ever said to me that, Eric was involved and he uh, in the production side and he used to turn up and sit at the back of the room so I don't know where all this happened and I'm not I'm I'm not going to comment on it to be honest he can think what he thinks and and I'll think what I think and they're probably different so that yeah, that's sure. it but yeah. I still say that I don't think the songs were very good and that's that's the way it is
So in terms of the actual recording, you said it was a bit labored. So was there a moment when the relationship with Paul started to go downhill a bit or was it just, it was perfectly um, affable, but it just, just there was something that just wasn't quite right about the sessions. Yeah, it was affable, but labored, you know, it just took a long time. I mean, if Paul was going to play the bass, he would want to overdub it again later and it would take sort of ages and he would, it was just difficult. I mean, it was, we were all f sort of affable. I mean, it was, start with, it was fantastic working with Paul because he'd come in and recount Beatles anecdotes and stuff, which was, you know, really good fun to listen to that sort of thing. And everybody working on the sessions were, were lovely. And Linda would come down sometimes and she was lovely. And, um, uh, uh, it, it, but it just, it, I, I just felt that I was, to use this terrible word, trying to polish a turd. It was just really, really difficult. And, and sometimes you just tear your hair out. I mean, one episode I remember on one of the songs, I suggested that perhaps we, I can't remember even exactly what it was, perhaps the, the middle eight was too long or or whatever and Paul's reply to me was well how many hit songs have you written Hugh so I yeah. felt yeah you know cr crawling up into a into a ball and and falling down the nearest hole I could find what was your response I don't I think I was so hurt by that response I can't I can't remember saying anything to be honest I certainly didn't I didn't argue <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned in the previous interview about what you should have said that you've just produced No Jacket Required. Well, yeah, that's what, I, that's, that's what I should have said. But I'm, 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 I'm probably naturally not very confrontational. Yeah, yeah. So I guess after and that... you Paul could get quite annoyed. You know, he, he, he could get quite annoyed. I don't think I'm the only person to have found it difficult to work with him. I mean... What kind of things would he get annoyed at? In the studio. Oh, he'd get annoyed at himself sometimes for not coming up with, you know, the bass line or, or, or something. But I mean, there was a game that was really popular in the 80s. It was like a general knowledge card game. Trivial Pursuits. Trivial Pursuits. And there was a Trivial Pursuits, uh, a music version, right? Mm. And so it was Paul's birthday. And so... I thought I'd give him the Triple Pursuits musical edition for, for a birthday present. And um, the next day or the Monday or whatever it was, he came in and he was really cross. And I remember thinking that, that he, he was quite cross at me. And then somebody said, oh, there was one of the questions in it was how old was Paul when his mother died or something. And... Um, I didn't know that was in there. Do you know what how I mean? old was it? Oh, yeah, I can imagine that would. <laughs> Isn't that weird to, to live in existence where there can be a question in Trill Pursuit about when your mum died? Yeah, at that I, level of fame. Can't be. Can't be. I think it was something to, like like that. I'm not sure if it was if that was exactly the question, but it might have been something like that. But again, so did he, know, did he, I, did he I, mention I, that directly felt, to you, or just did somebody say it? I think. It? I think he was grumpy at me and he didn't actually say it to me but somebody did say that's what that's why he was 
not very happy. But little things like that, you know, it was... What is your favourite track on the album? Are there any tracks you actually like? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, this uh... See, I actually prefer it to Flowers in the Dirt, which is the one that followed it, which sold better and was critically well-reviewed. But I actually think there's a real... It's kind of the last time when you really... Well, for a while, at least, where you really took chances and did something kind of offbeat and a bit weird. A song like Talk More Talk is so odd. Yeah. Which is what I love about it. And it's, again, it's very... It's probably his most 80s track. I really love that song. <laughs> I love that that recording. Something someday. I hear water going through the pipe. I don't actually like sitting down music. Music is ideas. <laughs> 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 I don't know if what you think about it. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, like, what is anything that weird on Flowers in the Dirt? I mean, all the rough edges were kind of honed and it was kind of more polished and, and neat and proper and it kind of lost that kind of character that I think Flowers, that uh, Press to Play has. Yeah. Who did, convinced who, are you? who did um, Flowers in the Dirt with him? Uh, there's a bunch of people. Trevor Horn did a couple of tracks with Stephen Lipson and Chris yeah. Hughes and Neil Dorfman and obviously McCartney himself. There's a bunch of different producers. Yeah, it's very. It's a good album, but I just I just prefer Press the Play. I think has more character to it, more personality. I think I quite like Footprints. Friends have flown away. He's left out in the cold. He won't sit by my fire. He says he likes it in the snow. And I quite like Only Love Remains. I think that's a beautiful ballad. I think it's one of his best ballads since the Beatles, I'd say, Only Love Remains. You think? Yeah, yeah I do think it's a beautiful I song. Do, I do like that song. When all our friends have gone And we're alone There's nothing left to shout about Together we let's go What about press? The first single. No. <laughs> really? No. I'm going to edit out your answer. Just leave it to that sound because I think that that is the answer. So I think press is a great pop song. I think it's a really, really great pop song. It's, it's, Good guitar solo from Carlos. Alamar. Yeah, but it's weak, I think, really. Actually, and going back to um, covers. I didn't like that cover when I first saw it at all. Really? I, I probably slightly like it more now, but I... I... What was it you didn't like about it? It's that classic black and white portrait. Yeah, I mean, it's a pastiche, isn't it? Wasn't it... I can't even remember who, who did the cover now, but it was... It was a... Gerald Harrell, is it somebody? Very famous, like, somebody... 30s, 40s... Yeah, exactly. Photographer, yeah. Yeah. It's not true! Correction Corner. That photographer's name is George, not Gerard. Harold.
or Haran. Whatever it is, it's definitely not Gerard. Thank you. It's not true. So, yeah, you know, it's not favourite album I've made, put it like that. I think you should give it another listen. I think it's well worth well worth a revisit. Okay. Shall I? Okay. So, so, so you say you prefer if you had a choice between tonight and press to play, you'd prefer tonight. Probably, yes. Probably. Yes. Okay. Yes. Actually, however <laughs> absurd and quite fun. Yeah, well. yeah. So that was really interesting to me. I have to admit, I love Press to Play. Uh, and to me, it's, I know Hugh feels otherwise, but it's, it's way more successful as an album than, than say Tonight by Bowie is. And you have to bear in mind, 86 is the last album came out, this first post-Live Aid album. There were definitely two 80s. It was a pre and post-Live Aid, post-Live Aid lulls. And it was a definite changing of the guard after Live Aid, best represented by, by U2 as being the new kids on the block not literally the new kids on the block but just you know what i mean so it wasn't just the pop careers that were ended after live aid yeah you howard jones and nick kershaw's and paul young's that stopped being like top 10 artists but you established that acts queen aside elton john's next album flopped david bowie's next album flopped paul mccartney's next album flopped so it's almost like whatever he'd have done it wasn't going to be received as well and it's a good album so I think, yeah, if you get a chance, check it out. It's definitely worth a listen. Uh, another thing, researching, and it's great fun researching for this podcast, but especially so for Hugh Padgham, because of the range of artists and the great albums he's been involved in. But I have this thing where I do my own album edits. I interviewed <laughs> Chris Hughes and Ian Stanley for the Tears of Fears series I've done, and uh, I told them both what I would have done with the track listing for Songs from the Big Chair. Uh, yeah, how I would have improved the album. Basically, it would have been swapping Working Hour and Shout and then swapping I Believe and Mother's Talk, effectively. It's something I like to do. So I've, I've done a couple of album edits while I was researching the Hugh Padgham. It is oeuvre. Uh, so Genesis, 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 Genesis album. Take off just a job to do. Because it's basically the whodunit of the album. And replace the album version It's going to get better with the six and a half minute version that was on the Mama single, the long version. And then you got the perfect eight track album there. So I know Jack Acquired, you got a bonus track, We Said Hello Goodbye. I think it was on the uh, CD. It's a lovely song. Uh, see, the, the first part, the We Said Hello bit, is like this long instrumental intro, which you're listening to right now. Uh, so you fade that into Susudi at the beginning, that sounds quite good. 
knew a move who said I would which to me is the only weak track on the album and at the end as Take Me Home fades into the distance uh, you begin the second part of the song Goodbye so the perfect album so try that see what you think and uh, see you soon for the last part of the Padgham 80sography bye or goodbye Hold on a second, hold on a second. Shouting at prayer. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, my wife just realised I was recording. <laughs> <laughs> She's on the podcast um, at last. <laughs>